and welcome to Pole Position, a podcast series from the Hoover Institution covering the 2016 election season. Pole Position is hosted by Hoover Research Fellow Bill Whalen, an expert in U.S. and California politics and elections. Hello, it's Tuesday, October the 4th, and welcome to Pole Position, the Hoover Institution's ongoing look at the 2016 election, now just five weeks away. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Joining me today, a special guest, the co-founder and executive editor of the Weekly Standard, and this week, a Hoover Institution Media Fellow, Fred Barnes. Fred, great to have you in studio. I'm glad to be here, Bill. I've known you a long time. Uh, For listeners who don't know this, Bill Whalen grew up right across the street from me in Arlington, Virginia, and he's gone on to greater things in California. So people who can blame Fred for what happened to me here, but uh, no, it's a funny story. So I grew up in Arlington, Virginia, as Fred mentioned. I actually went to the same high school in Alexandria mm-hmm. that Fred went to, and when I first met Fred, uh, he and his wife had a very young daughter who my, my sister babysat for. I hate to think how much she charged you for an hour, maybe a buck an hour or something <laughs> yeah. like that back then. It was very cheap. But Fred was an aspiring young writer with the Washington Star, would have been back then? Yes. And uh, this shows you how circumstances work out in life. Fred was covering the House Republicans at the time, and Fred was on a first-name basis with a very earnest congressman named Gerald Ford. And then, as circumstance would have it, Gerald Ford is elevated to the vice presidency, and I guess you switched over to the White House at that time. With I Ford. did, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I remember watching, uh, shows you what a boring young man I was, but I remember watching one of then-President Ford's first press conferences, and he's up in front of this audience mm-hmm. of reporters. He doesn't know these people. So throughout the press conference, he keeps referring to Fred. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so a star is born at that point. So, Fred, let me ask you a question. Where were you on the night of October the 7th, 1984? And while you while you delve into your date book yeah. to look it up, I'll give you two <laughs> hints. Number one, Louisville, Kentucky. Yes. And number two, Diane Sawyer. Well, Diane Sawyer was one of the panelists with me on the first Reagan-Walter Mondale debate. Uh, and it was a, uh, a debate worth uh, remembering uh, for a number of reasons. There were three panelists. We don't see that now. Uh, and the, uh, the other one was... Uh, uh, Jim, uh, I'll think of his last Jim, name in a minute. Jim Wehart. Yeah, Jim Wehart of the New York Daily News. I mean, think of this. I was with the Baltimore Sun, and Jim Wehart was with the New York Daily News, and Diane Sawyer. Then I'm not sure who she was with, but it was television. CBS at the time. CBS, yeah. and, uh, and Barbara Walters was the moderator. We haven't had debates like this in recent uh, right. years because we've had one person there. And uh, and this was a debate. It's not remembered because I was there. It was remembered because it was a terrible night for the incumbent president, Ronald Reagan, who had decided had been, well, he'd been prevailed on by AIDS, that he needed to really show that he was a detailed guy, that he wasn't just some guy who gave gave flowery speeches, and uh, but some guy who really, really knew all the all the intimate details about all his policies. Well, uh, he, he mentioned some of those details, and it was a horrible debate. It was not what people wanted from Reagan. Walter Mondale was great. I've always thought it was the best night in his entire political career. Uh, and, uh, and it was certainly a night that, uh, that I remember. But it was, uh, I shook hands with Reagan on stage immediately after the debate, and he looked stricken. Reagan knew that he had done a terrible job and wrote later about it in his autobiography of the American Life about how, look, he'd been an entertainer. He knew about audiences. He knew that he, he knew when he was going over well with an audience, it mattered to him. And the fact that he didn't uh, in that debate was an embarrassment. He, he was embarrassed. This is a little different from Donald Trump that we see today, but Reagan knew immediately that he'd done poorly. And two, uh, he uh, didn't like it. 
Yeah, I, you can actually find the debate on uh, YouTube. There are two Reagan debates you'll find. The first one, which we're talking about, is October the 7th. The second one was about three weeks later, and he found his stride in the second he, debate. He did. Um, so it's interesting. So there are three of you journalists in this. It was you and mm -hmm. Diane and Jim Wehart. Interesting yep. thing about Jim Wehart. Uh, so he actually uh, circulated out of journalism a couple of years later. He mm -hmm. went to work for Teddy Kennedy mm -hmm. as his uh, staff director. And then he found full-time full employment after that. He got a job at Lawrence Walsh on the Iran-Contra scandal, <laughs> really? mm -hmm. which took him up through 1992. And mm -hmm. I was working on the Bush campaign right. in 1992. And you might remember the little <laughs> gift that, the, that Lawrence Walsh yeah. dropped on mm -hmm. George Bush in that mm -hmm. election of the mm -hmm. uh, subpoenas right at the end of the election. So. Yeah. Well, it was, uh, it was clearly... Uh, uh, something that Lawrence Walsh shouldn't have done, should have known better. And amazingly, uh, the political press, the mainstream media, it didn't seem to uh, treat it as something uh, out of the ordinary, something that should never have happened right before an election. Right. Not good. So if you go back and watch that 1984 debate, what is striking is just really how structured it is. Mm -hmm. Each of you gets sort of your own segment to talk. Mm -hmm. And Diane used a segment to talk about abortion. You used a question, you used your time to talk about religion, interestingly mm -hmm. enough, where he asked Ronald Reagan that you invoke religion, but mm -hmm. you don't go to church at often. I'm yeah. sure he loved that question, by the way. <laughs> the, uh, well, you know, it turned yeah. out there's an odd uh, epilogue to this question. I had discussed uh, what I should ask uh, Reagan with my friend Tom DeFrank, who was then at Newsweek magazine. Uh, we'd been friends for a long time, and he covered the White House, and we uh, and I talked to him about this was on the phone from Louisville. Uh, you know what might Reagan never expect? And you always in those days, that's what uh, reporters thought about it. You know, how can I ask this uh, politician uh, something that uh, is just completely out of the ordinary, and I'll get some answer that he it, uh, that is not scripted already? And I thought that did it. You know, ask him about why he didn't go to church. And Reagan said uh, his answer was basically, well, it would be a security problem. It would be disruptive at church and so on. And, and I didn't think that was a very good answer. But under the circumstances, it was, it was okay, I guess. Later, I read Ronald Reagan's diaries, uh, which is if you want to read a single book, even though it's a doorstopper, if you want to read a single book where you'll learn more about Ronald Reagan than in any other book and realize what a really talented and, uh, and at least near great and maybe great president he was, read the diaries. Anyway, this question had come up why he about going to church with it. He thought it through. Uh, he'd been invited to many churches to, to come on Sunday, and he hadn't gone, and he decided it was too disruptive, and there would be security problems, and it would be too difficult. And, you know, I thought I'd stumped him with a question he'd never heard of, and uh, he, he, he'd uh, thought through this thing before. And I'll say, I, and then I wrote something about him and, and confessing that I tried to stump him and thought I had, and I hadn't. Right. Then later in the debate, you asked a very good question to both candidates about whether they thought the middle class was overtaxed or undertaxed. Mm -hmm. And you define the middle class as $25,000 to $45,000. <laughs> so here we are, Fred, in the middle of an election where we're talking about giving free college to make everyone yeah. making under $125,000. Right. So mm -hmm. the times they have it changed. Indeed. Uh, there's a reason why I'm bringing up uh, the good old days of, mm -hmm. of this, because in 1992, the presidential debates take a turn, and I would argue a turn for the decided worst. Mm -hmm. Two things happen. Number one, they go away from the one moderator, three journalist format to a lone moderator, mm -hmm. Jim Blair from former mm -hmm. PBS doing the honors uh, since 1992 until recently. And secondly, they invoke what they call the town hall format. Mm -hmm. uh, ironically, in 1992, that was the first a year of the mm -hmm. town hall format with mm -hmm. uh, then-President H.W. Bush, and it was done in Richmond, Virginia, the last time there was a debate uh, before this year's vice presidential debate in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Mm -hmm. He famously looks down at his watch toward the end of the debate, and it's a, it's a terrible night for the president. But mm -hmm. we've done these town halls ever since the next mm -hmm. uh, Clinton-Trump debate will be a town hall. Uh, 
I think I wrote an article for Real Clear Politics on this. I, I think the Presidential Debate Commission's put itself into a lose-lose situation. You put a moderate out there, especially in this election, Fred, and you saw this happen with Matt Lauer. Uh, you're perceived as not going tough enough on Trump. I think in Lauer's case, it was about uh, his position on the Iraq war. And so he gets flamed by the left for going easy on Trump. Then you see what happens with Lester Holt after the first debate where he gets flamed by the right for being too tough on Trump. Mm -hmm. So I don't see how a lone moderator in this day and age, given people's feelings about politicians, the media, I don't see how one moderator can do this balancing act. I don't think so. Jim Lehrer did a pretty good job, but I think he was one of a kind. And uh, now uh, I, I don't think it can be done. Uh, and, and a panel just brings you uh, something that you don't get with one person. You get three different points of view. You get people that are, are interested in different parts of uh, politics uh, and policy. Uh, I mean, Diane, sir, we all met the night before in Louisville. Uh, and and discussed uh, you know what we should ask and 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 it was done for one reason we didn't want to repeat the same questions and right. and and we went we were all interested in different things I was certainly the only one interested in asking about why Ronald Reagan didn't go to church uh, but Diane Sawyer had her things that she was more interested in and Jim Wehart did as well and uh, and and we were a, a diverse group I mean I was certainly the most conservative but Diane Sawyer had worked in the Nixon White House uh, and Jim Wehart wound up working for Teddy Kennedy uh, for the Kennedys and uh, it uh, was so you really got a dispersal of of uh, viewpoints and questions that you don't get with one person, even when that person tries. Uh, and none of us could pick on one of the candidates because somebody we'd ask one question and and then the uh, and then the next person would come up and ask questions. It really worked well. The trouble with the uh, with having a town hall and people and and citizens ask questions, it's I think it's kind of a conceit. That the the public really has these questions they want to ask, and the media doesn't ask them. And uh, the truth is, the, the the media does ask them. And the question that was decisive in that 1922, 1992 debate was one, as I recall, uh, Bill. Correct me if I'm wrong. A woman asked uh, uh, President Bush something. Well, what are you going to do about the debt? Uh, it's and then she was using the word debt, as I recall. And then what she was really talking about was the deficit. Right. And uh, and it kind of puzzled. Uh, President Bush. He tried to figure it out, and he never really did. And uh, but Bill Clinton just gave some glib answer as if he'd understood it perfectly, and exactly. the woman seemed satisfied. And uh, but it was it was uh, uh, the problem there was it was an extremely poorly uh, framed question. It didn't even touch uh, ask correctly about what it was supposed to be. A panel is not going to do that. Exactly. And in this rather dark conspiratorial mm -hmm. age in which we live in, you always wonder, who are these people in the crowd? And lo and behold, <laughs> yeah. somebody is always a teacher's union activist. Yeah, <laughs> somebody right. has some title Republican mm -hmm. campaign. Mm -hmm. It all just kind of magically pop yeah. up. But yeah, 1992, the problem with Bush was, you're right, it was he was asked about the debt and the economy and how it personally affected him. And mm -hmm. this was the problem. George Bush mm -hmm. was one of the last of the old school presidents. Yeah. And yeah. he really believed in a more detached presidency, mm -hmm. if you will. And the president was mm -hmm. you know, at least eight or nine levels of government between him and that person who asked the question. Mm -hmm. So he was just flummoxed as to, yeah. you know, all he could say was, well, I get letters on this. But <laughs> <You know. laughs> no, the, his have, problem was, Bill, that he tried to figure out what the question was and tried to answer it. Bill Clinton said, well, I'm just going to give this great answer. And with whatever <laughs> whatever she's trying to find out about, I, uh, it doesn't matter. And, and as it turned out, Clinton did the right thing politically.
which is ironically one of the first rules of good debate prep for a candidate, you don't have to answer the question. You don't have to answer it, but you do need to prepare. You know, a, a friend of mine reminded me uh, the other day about uh, uh, Jim Baker, the former Secretary of State and White House Chief of Staff and Treasury Secretary and all kinds of things, had his five Ps. You know his five Ps? Preparation, prior preparation prevents poor performance. There's actually another P word in there that uh, is a hyphen word, blank, poor. Prior preparation <laughs> prevents poor presentation. Po uh, poor, poor performance. Yeah, poor. poor I'll okay. say it again. Prior preparation prevents poor performance, the five Ps. And I think we can see in the first debate with uh, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, one of the candidates didn't prepare. You know, even the best I'm referring to Trump, obviously, but even the best candidates, Ronald Reagan, uh, one of the great speakers, a great candidate, a great Ed, who knew how to please listeners by telling stories and so on, he prepared. Uh, he prepared <laughs> wrongly, as it turned out, in that first debate in 1984. But after that, he he righted himself, as you said. But but preparation really does matter. So continuing down memory lane, uh, on the 92 campaign toward the very end when it became apparent that we were losing on the mm -hmm. Bush campaign and we just could not get any favorable press whatsoever, mm -hmm. uh, somebody came up with the idea of putting out a bumper sticker mm -hmm. saying, annoy the media, reelect the president. Yeah. And this has been the telltale sign threat of every losing campaign yeah, I've been I associated know. with mm -hmm. ever since. You, mm -hmm. you try to throw the media under the bus. But mm -hmm. in this election, as you're watching these debates and you're watching what's happened with Trump the past yeah. week, what do you make of the political media in 2016? Well, a section, a, a, a large segment, the liberal, and which is the predominant segment of the political media in, in this country, the mainstream media, has decided that Trump is unacceptable as a president, and we're going to concentrate on, on, uh, on proving that point. And they have uh, really, really focused on it. I receive the Washington Post at home every day, and and it certainly has uh, uh, just been dominated by unfavorable coverage of Trump. Stories that you uh, wouldn't imagine might have any impact on the voters, and they may not, but they're on the front page of the Washington Post. The New York Times, for instance, will do a story. I was struck by one they did uh, uh, very recently about how did Hillary Clinton act as the wife of a husband who, had, who was uh, sexually active with other women. And they treated this story as she was trying to hold her family together and she was very active in, in trying to make sure these women didn't uh, speak out publicly because she wanted to uh, uh, protect her husband's political career. But they left out the really the most harming stuff. Uh, a woman, Juanita Broderick, who said uh, that Bill Clinton had raped her. Another woman, uh, they mentioned Paula Jones, but not that uh, she said Bill Clinton had exposed himself to her. Uh, or, Kath or Kathleen Willey, who had said that he, right after her husband had committed suicide, that, that he had uh, uh, molested her, had, had grabbed her. Um, and uh, the, those were just not mentioned. I mean, I wouldn't call the piece a whitewash, but it left out uh, very key information about Hillary Clinton, who the New York Times is promoting for president. Mm. What we've seen in the past week, though, strikes me as unusual because it's not just negative pieces written about Trump. Mm -hmm. Had them coming in all directions. The the tax returns, uh, people from mm -hmm. his apprentice days have now come out to talk about him being lewd and suggestive. Ironic, by the way, the same story is coming out about Schwarzenegger in the very last days of the recall mm -hmm. here in California. Uh, you've seen hits coming in from different directions. Yep. But what strikes me unusual in this election is you have reporters openly pushing back saying, 
we don't have a problem with doing this. Yeah. No, it's mm-hmm. a theory that you're not supposed to take sides. You're not supposed to be yeah. an advocate. But uh, especially in the case of the New York Times reporter, she has said he's free to push it as he wants to bring it on because we're more than happy to take him to court and make him, you know, cough up his tax returns. So yeah. it's just, it's sort of, you know, I don't like to play the media, media bias card mm-hmm. because it's kind of intellectually lazy at times. Yeah. But and I'm not, I'm not a Trump advocate either. <laughs> but you just, this does just what I think a lot of Americans mm-hmm. look like right now, a rather unfair fight. Well, look, uh, there's always been liberal my, uh, bias in the media. There's often been less of it, however, in uh, in campaigns, uh, where there are obviously two sides, uh, and uh, and the media has it's been one of the areas that I, I think of the, the least uh, media bias until this year, and what you've mentioned, the uh, uh, the candor of uh, reporters saying that they're justified in concentrating on attacking Donald Trump and preventing him from being president is uh, utterly unprecedented. I've never seen anything like it. Now, some people have written that the media will never be the same again, that the mainstream media has been exposed in not just bias, not just slant, uh, but actual efforts, an actual effort to destroy a candidate, uh, that the the mainstream media will never be viewed the same again. Um, Well, I think we're going to have to wait and see whether that's true or not, but I suspect it might be. Uh, the uh, the Trump and and oddly enough, I think that if Trump loses, he's still going to be around. I don't think he's going to go hide. I think he's going to be a very active political figure. He'll be interviewed a lot. He'll have a lot to say about a lot of things. And while uh, some people in the mainstream media may think they're driving in into hibernation if he loses, I think he will not. He's not a bear. He's not going to hibernate. Do you think he'll start his own network? I have no idea whether he'd start his own network. I don't think he really needs to uh, to do that to be a huge uh, figure in politics. Uh, he'll want to, uh, you know, he has done one thing that normally you would think would make a candidate be liked by the media, and that is there has never been a presidential candidate in my going back. I go back to about 1976, who has been more uh, available to the media. Uh, you know, he wakes up in the morning and he calls in the morning shows. Uh, and then, or maybe that's uh, before he tweets or maybe it's after he tweets. And then he'll do a, interview, a late morning interview and maybe one in the afternoon. And he has rallies and he'll be interviewed before and after them. If you watch uh, Fox and some of the uh, cable shows, uh, you know, he'll be there being interviewed on stage where he's about to give a speech. So, I mean, there's just never been anyone who has been this available and yet uh, it hasn't made him liked by the media for sure. No, and I, you could argue Ronald Reagan in terms of movies and doing TV afterwards mm-hmm. was in some respects a creation. Of, it had media in his background. Yep. But I can't think of a candidate, Fred, a nominee certainly, mm-hmm. who has been a media creation like Trump. Yep. Because in addition to, yes, uh, Fox and doing Fox and Friends hits in the morning and keeping him in the news on various topics over the years. Before that, Apprentice and the various other things he mm-hmm. does in terms of football and all that, yep. he's a creation of modern media. If he's not on television, mm-hmm. you don't know who he is today. Yeah, no, we wouldn't. And it made him, uh, uh, and it was also helped. I think that's one thing. And the other thing, that helped him get the Republican nomination. Uh, well, there are a couple other things, but the, the one, uh, it, if it hadn't have been a large field with 17 candidates, and one, and while 16 of them were generally arguing about who's the most conservative, the 17th candidate was someone with a big personality who could stand out, who was different, who was more candid, who would 
insult other candidates. We know all the things he did that make him right. uh, that made him stand out. Um, in a small field, it would have been harder to do that. Um, but in this large field, it was, and so he dominated the debates. And he did have a couple of issues, which, in, given the division in the Republican Party, appealed to a big chunk of people. One, of course, was immigration. That was probably the biggest one. And and Trump always had a, a knack for exaggerating an issue to make sure that uh, you knew uh, to, to try to show that he was really serious about this. And in immigration, he didn't say he'd just stop illegal immigrants from coming in. He'd build a wall. And I think if he's elected president, he'll try to build a wall and may succeed. No, it's one of the great questions. If somebody wants to come along and be Trump in 2020, yeah. can anybody else be Trump or is Trump really one of a kind? Well, he is one of a kind and uh, we'll see what he wants to do. Uh, you know, there's some obvious candidates who may run in 2020. Uh, uh, one of them, of course, is House Speaker Paul Ryan. Another is uh, uh, Marco Rubio, who's probably going to be reelected to the Senate, ran in in, uh, in 2016, may run again. I think if Republicans wind up with another huge field, uh, Trump can dominate again. Right. Let's, I'd like to take you through a little speed round here, Fred, and I call it good guys or bad guys. Okay. I'm throw some various names at you, and I want to get your reaction as to their effect on political journalism. Okay. <laughs> react, I like one person you work with, but otherwise it's going to be. Okay. Good. Number one, Paul Taylor. Uh, Paul Taylor, 99% mm -hmm. of this podcast will not know who Paul Taylor is, but you and I do. Paul mm -hmm. Taylor was a political reporter for the Washington Post in the 1980s. And in May of 1987, he asked Gary Hart a threshold question. Yeah. Senator, have you ever committed adultery? Mm -hmm. I asked that, Fred, because you mentioned the Washington Post article. Sure. You have read throughout this campaign uh, cycle story after story about newspapers trying to, A, write about the Clintons' marriage, B, dance around the state of their marriage. Mm -hmm. C, try to encapsulate what Bill Clinton has done with his time as a mm -hmm. private citizen's yeah. presidency. I would contend, friend, they have all for the past 30 years been trying to decide how much to invade a candidate's life. Yeah, mm -hmm. they have. And uh, they've decided to in invade uh, Donald Trump's a lot. Uh, and um, look, I wouldn't blame Paul Taylor for uh, uh, beginning that, but, but he was representative of what a lot of people in the media wanted to do. And remember, uh, the leak there was uh, in the in the whole Gary Hart case. Uh, uh, the story ultimately written about his uh, that Gary Hart, while a candidate, was having an affair with a, a woman named Donna Rice, uh, and, and the the they found him in the house of of Donna Rice in in Washington because the uh, this tip had been it, it had right. been so great it became a very controversial issue. But uh, now I think we've gotten to a point of anything goes. It was interesting. So Hart had actually done a long interview, I think it was a New York mm -hmm. Times Magazine yep. profile, where he said the very tragic yeah. words, go ahead and follow me around, yeah. you'll be bored. Yeah. And sure enough, a couple of Miami Herald reporters yeah. mm -hmm. got the tip and they followed him around, which mm -hmm. led them to Donna Rice and the love boat they're on and all that. Yeah, they but were not bored. Involved, but it also involved them sort of stalking him in Washington and confronting him and all that. Yeah. But just over the last 30 years now, there's mm -hmm. just been this rather sort mm -hmm. of slotting slope of when do we write about it, when do we don't, when do we acknowledge the rumors, when do we not report it. Well, remember so. some of the stories, the, uh, the effort has been particularly against uh, some conservatives in recent years. Gary Hart was certainly not one, but against, uh, remember in 2008, a story by the New York Times alleging that, uh, uh, trying to uh, make you believe anyway, that uh, uh, John McCain had and maybe was still having an affair with a lobbyist, a right. female lobbyist. Uh, I think the story fell apart, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and, but you can see the effort was there uh, by the Times to discredit uh, right. John McCain in that way. Sam was thrown at Dan Quayle. Curiously, was not pursued much in the way of John Edwards when he yeah. ran for president. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. 
Good well, guy, it bad took. Guy. Yeah, it it was pursued right. by the National, National Enquirer, <laughs> and of course, uh, their reporting on John Edwards, which turned out to be uh, accurate, uh, was dismissed by the rest of the media as being, oh, they're just some uh, trashy uh, supermarket magazine. Good guy, bad guy, number two, John McLaughlin. Well, John McLaughlin, of course, had may, a famous he, TV may he show. May he rest in peace. Mm-hmm. May he rest in peace. May he rest in peace. I went to his funeral. Great. Uh, 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 a talk honoring him uh, by Pat Buchanan, very funny. Uh, John McLaughlin was a former Jesuit priest and and acted like a current Jesuit priest at times. And but, but he had a great TV show. Uh, where, on the air in about 80, 82. Began in eighty two. Eighty eight. Uh, well, I first went on in nineteen eighty four and was a substitute, and then uh, I was on about every other week, and then uh, permanently from nineteen eighty eight to nineteen ninety eight. John McLaughlin changed. Uh, uh, television, political television, I think, uh, really dramatically. Before, the shows have been ones like Meet the Press. Nothing wrong with Meet the right. Press, but you'd have four panelists there, and and it was pretty stuffy, uh, and they would ask uh, uh, questions that uh, were generally a, a lot of more congressional reporters, and they would ask inside questions about legislation and so on. It wasn't very exciting. Well, uh, uh, the and, and there'd really been only one uh, television show where a bunch of reporters and columnists got together and talked, and that was the Agronsky and Company. Uh, but then McLaughlin came along in in uh, in, in 1982, and it was and, and he had <laughs> he encouraged uh, some disagreements among among the panelists. There were four of them, and um, and some uh, combat even and and. Uh, McLaughlin would try to egg it on, uh, and he would uh, intervene if you said something he didn't like. He'd say wrong, and it was easy to caricature. And of course, Sunday, uh, Saturday night, Saturday Night Live did caricature the uh, the McLaughlin group, but it caught on, particularly in Washington. Among right. the people who watched it on uh, Saturday nights in Washington were the Reagans, and uh, the Reagans, uh, of course, the Ronald Reagan showed up at uh, one of the anniversaries. I think it was the fifth anniversary of the uh, of the McLaughlin group showed up and gave a talk and so on, and uh, there uh, uh, congratulating John McLaughlin, and the show endured for an awful long time. I mean, television can just sort of eat you up, and then people get tired in a hurry, but McLaughlin did ran did the show up until the week before he died. Uh, and it was <laughs> he was not in good health, but uh, it was a it was an endurance test that I give him credit for passing. And he would lo- look, he was very nice to me. He was a difficult person, but if you tried to get along with him, um, uh, you could. but remember when he started the show, he had people on who were well-known columnists, right. Bob Novak. Pat Buchanan uh, and Jack Germond, who was my boss at the Evening Star in Washington at the time. Uh, And and these were big names in Washington journalism. You know, we think of the TV people now as being more important, but these were all all writers. Uh, Evans and Novak was a big column in the Washington Post, and uh, there was an era in Washington, which everybody would forget now, where bureau chiefs, (laughs) of <laughs> of papers were important people. Uh, they aren't now. It's uh, changed completely. But but that made the show big to start with because these were the uh, the reporters in town, a little older, uh, who people w- were respected and, and people had heard of. Hero villain number three, Roger Ailes. Look, R- Roger Ailes... This may be a whole separate podcast. Yeah, we, yeah, we could. Roger Ailes is going to be famous for two things. He is going to be famous for starting what he created Fox and News. Left, right? Yeah, uh, and he, 
Which Fox, the 20th anniversary is, I think, this Friday, if I'm not mistaken. It started in right. 1996. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's October mm-hmm. the 7th. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, uh, Mort Kondracki and I were on, <laughs> did the first uh, show where we, with election returns in the, in the 1996 election. It was a, a, a pretty crude operation back then. Anyway, uh, Roger Ailes started the Fox News Network out of nothing. It's, uh, it, it's what Peter Thiel talks about, what's really uh, uh, great that can be achieved, mm-hmm. and that is when somebody just goes from, uh, gets a company and makes it bigger and better, and that's going from, say, one to two. Roger Ailes went from what the Peter Thiel talks about is going from zero to one out of nothing. Fox didn't have, had nothing, no overseas bureaus, no reporters, didn't have anything. And he and and wasn't and when he started, of course, it was a cable channel. The difficulty was getting on cable systems all over the country. Remember, it's a balkanized system. You know, practically every county uh, has a different uh, cable operator, and uh, and that took a long time. And but anyway, he built it up into this incredible network that people loved. Uh, not entirely a conservative network, but with a lot of conservatives on it who had shows, uh, and it became a great success. Roger Ailes, it turned out, uh, it, had, it had a problem, uh, and that and and once uh, 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 one of his young women on the show, uh, Gretchen Carlson, a former Miss America, uh, filed suit uh, saying that uh, she had been molested by Roger Ailes, and that that and when she wouldn't um, comply, that that's why she was fired, uh, and that stood alone. And then we heard a few weeks later that Megyn Kelly had talked to the lawyers of Gretchen Carlson and said she had had a, a run-in with Fox where he had, I forget exactly what it was, but he had, had put his hands on her in yep. one way or another. And then there was an avalanche of uh, younger women coming in and saying that Roger Ailes had propositioned them or various uh, things or other. I don't know how many of them were true or not true, but there were enough to uh, uh, create a, uh, a critical mass that led to his being fired. Just sad to see some guy who achieved so much uh, to have this uh, a problem. And look, I'm not dismissing it at all. And I and you know I have I have daughters. I have three grown daughters. Uh, I I just can imagine. Uh, uh, how I would feel if they had gone in to apply for a job with Roger Ailes and he tried to French kiss them and, and things like that. It's pretty, uh, pretty sordid. So I'm, I'm in no way whitewashing yeah. that part. On the other hand, his creation of Fox News was extraordinary. Which leads to the next guy, and he's not a villain, Britt Hume. Well, and Brit- I asked Britt because not only did Britt step in and take over mm. uh, Greta's show, which I saw you on the other day, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, but also you and Britt, you go back to UVA, don't you? No, before that, Britt and I became friends in high school, although well, we didn't go to the same school. He we went to St. Albans, but we had a mutual friend. friend, so we became friends then. And then we both went to the University of Virginia. Then we both went into the same business. Britt became a, a reporter uh, uh, for the afternoon paper in Hartford, Connecticut, where his, his first wife was from, and then worked for UPI and then came to Washington and finally got a job with Jack Anderson and then ABC and then Fox News. And we know he's become one of the most famous journalists in America and I think one of the most respected. So we've been friends for an, <laughs> for an awful long time. And of course, Brett uh, famously started on Fox News, which was then a fledgling network in 1998, January of 1998. Fox was trying to work out a show for him, and they finally, the Monica Lewinsky story broke. And it broke on, I think, a Sunday. 
And on Monday, they decided, well, Britt, start your show. <laughs> they had done minimal planning, but Britt decided he wanted to have a panel on. That would be part of the show at the end for the last, uh, you know, 15 minutes or, or so. And so he asked me and Mort Kondracki, who was then with Roll Call, uh, and or maybe with the New Republic, one or the other, and Amara Lyerson uh, to be his panelist. Mara Lyerson at the time was covering the White House, uh, covering the White House for NPR, National Public Radio. So she did her part of the panel, generally from down at the White House. Right. And Mort and I were there, and and the panel clicked. I'll have to say, people liked the panel. It still goes on now. The Brett Bear has the show. He has a panel with Charles Krauthammer's on uh, much of the time. Steve Hayes, uh, my colleague at the Weekly Standard, is on frequently, and others. Uh, it's uh, it, it this idea that started with that panel uh, has has had a long life, and rightly sh- and rightly so. I think it's the best news hour on TV. I do too. In terms of what it gives you between politics, mm-hmm. domestic, international news, finance, it just mm-hmm. covers. The whole gamut. Thank you for mentioning Monica because that leads to the next one. We all have two more to go. Matt Drudge and the Internet. Because one thing which has certainly changed from back in mm-hmm. the 70s and 80s of campaigns, there is now an Internet. Mm-hmm. There's Internet journalism. There mm-hmm. are news outlets that mm-hmm. put their stories yeah. on Drudge beforehand to drive traffic. Uh, the Internet's now a monster for both good and bad in politics. Well, I, I would agree with that. It's both good and bad. I mean, I'm, I, I'm a great critic of the, of the Internet. It brings out the worst in people. Right. And yet I'm a great user of it. It's one of the first things I do in the morning. I get up and, and I, I, I'll have to say I'm an old print guy and I get both the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post delivered to my home. And so I look at them first. And then what do I go to? I go to Drudge. Drudge because Drudge has this combination of stuff that is irresistible. It's politics. It's the entertainment community. It's some gossip. uh, It's, you know, the weird story about some, you know, three-year-old who who jumps out of a a 20th story window and lives and things like that, you know. I mean, but it is – it's a great combination. It's been very – pro-Trump, of course, uh, over the last year. Uh, but it's irresistible. And then there are a lot of, look, you can, if you are minimally disciplined about it, you can find out all the information that you really want, uh, that, that depending on what you do. Uh, there, it, it is there somewhere. If you find it, you can go in a half an hour or 45 minutes and learn a great deal. And I go to uh, websites like uh, Real Clear Politics, which your piece about the debates was on, and uh, Powerline, which is a conservative one, and and even um, uh, and, and any number. And, and I, I look at National Review, which has one, a great website, and Politico, which has taken over as the as the uh, the franchise in Washington. And Political reporting. Standard. Com. I think you might want to look there. Well, Weekly Standard is it, well. Weekly Standard's a little different, and I'll yeah. I'll tell you why. The Weekly Standard has a website, uh, and we try to be current and get new uh, uh, stories on there. But we do not want the tail wagging the dog. The magazine is still the most important thing, a weekly magazine. Now, this may be an old-fashioned way of of doing it. You know, there are a lot of uh, former magazines like the National Journal that recently uh, collapsed as a print publication exists online. Well, we'd like to be known for our magazine and secondarily for our website. But it, right. but it is important, and, uh, you know, you certainly – and we, it seems like every few months we emphasize our website more than ever. Uh, and, and, of course, the news cycle has changed. It's not a 24-hour news cycle. It's, it's instant. You write, I mean, I'm going to, when I do a piece on a, on a presidential debate, mm-hmm. the debate's over. 
I'm writing as fast as I can to get my piece uh, sent in and posted on the Weekly Standard website. You don't wait. You don't think. You, you file. Right. Which is both good and bad. I think we're going to. Well, it's it, it's probably more bad than good, uh, but uh, you know, there's nothing. I just think there's nothing like the feel of a newspaper. Whenever I go anywhere, I love to go to England because England has about five or six national newspapers that are always fun to read every every day. Not just the Daily Mail and the Telegraph, and the and the Times of London, the more conservative papers. But the Guardian is a is a great paper. The Daily, uh, the uh, the Independent is very good. There's just so much to read. I love it. Uh, uh, to go places where there's still a lot of newspapers. We have a few here, but they but they're. In, in, in many cities, the regional newspaper is the one. There used to be great regional newspapers. And the, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Chicago Tribune, the Boston Globe, L.A. Times, you know, so many of them. And they're all fading. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's too bad. It strikes me as funny. Anytime I take a long flight across the country or across the ocean, I notice there are five-year-old kids who are very happy with an iPad in front of them. Yeah. And they're good for the foreseeable future. Yeah. And then there are their grandparents sitting next to them who have a New York Times or a Washington <laughs> Post or yeah. a big Sunday newspaper. Mm-hmm. And they're good for several hours, yeah. too. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> but I think that tells you where we're headed. Final good guy, bad guy, Washington, D.C., and I ask in this regard, Fred, mm-hmm. you grew up in the city. Mm-hmm. I grew up, we both grew up outside yep. the city, but we'll call yep. ourselves Washingtonians. Mm-hmm. I go back to Washington, and it's a different city, and I know that's every old man's lament. Yeah. Ah, that's not the way it was when I was here. Same mm-hmm. deal when you go to university. Things have always changed. Mm-hmm. But what strikes me about Washington that's different, Fred, is this. It's money. Mm-hmm. And it's not the size and scope of government, mm-hmm. but it's the money associated mm-hmm. with said management running and influencing government. Yeah. You walk around Washington, mm-hmm. and what do you see? Restaurants constantly coming and going, hotels mm-hmm. constantly changing, office mm-hmm. space constantly being renovated, really nice cars on the streets, like mm-hmm. being in a Middle Eastern yeah. city in some regards with mm-hmm. Mercedes and BMWs flying mm-hmm. by. The business of government has exploded from mm-hmm. the time I lived in Washington and the time in which you've grown up in Washington. Mm-hmm. And this is good or bad? Yeah, uh, I think I th- this is a very loaded question. Yeah, no, I think it's very bad, and it's produced a parasite culture of Washington, which I've I wrote about in the New Republic when I was there. But uh, you sort of dismissed uh, the size and scope of government uh, as it is the cause. Yeah. It, without a, a government that delved into everything, you wouldn't have huge law firms that consist of lawyers who are lobbyists in Washington. Uh, you wouldn't have trade associations that had large staffs there. You wouldn't have uh, uh, much of the infrastructure, much of the private infrastructure is all designed uh, because government is involved in everything and people who are affected by it want to have uh, some people on the ground there who can protect their interests. They aren't, and, and they aren't just a business interest, so that's the main part. There are a lot of ideological interests. There are colleges and universities that get money from government and on and on and on. And it has created this town that is so much wealthier than you or I remember when we were growing up. Uh, and it, it's, uh, it's extraordinary, particularly when you drive out, not in Arlington or not in Alexandria, the close-in suburbs, but a little farther out in Fairfax County, where people have these huge mansions, uh, you know, two and three million dollar houses. They're all over the place. It is a, it is a city that is, uh, uh, that has changed dramatically. I remember Washington used to be known, as you'll remember, Bill, a sleepy southern town. And it was a sleepy southern town. Right. You had small government. You had practically no lobbyists, a few. Uh, and it's changed completely. And the, uh, 
uh, it's uh, the whole private uh, lobbying community and so on has really overwhelmed everything else that's there. It's overwhelmed Congress. Uh, my son happens to work for a, a member of Congress, and he's kind of a gatekeeper for this person. It's a uh, it's the House Majority Leader uh, Kevin McCarthy, and and and, and people uh, he's. Uh, want him because uh, will come talk to him because he's a bit of a gatekeeper and they want to see the congressman. But there there are tons of people. They all they have overwhelmed Congress and overwhelmed. I think some of the regulatory agencies as well, though they haven't as as much impact. Uh, but they do. They it's really Congress where they've been felt the most because that's the the place where you get the easiest access. So your son does well by people slipping fifties and hundreds in his pocket <laughs> to let him in, right? Like a matter of day. Um, you know, it struck me as a tipping point for this. Fred was when I was reading about what Obama is doing in his post-presidency. Mm-hmm. And he's not going back to Chicago. Mm-hmm. He and his wife are going to stay in Washington because they still have a daughter mm-hmm. going into Sid Wolf Friends. Well, they're not buying a house, Fred. They're renting a house. And who are they renting it from? Joe Lockhart, a friend of mine. I used to yeah. work with Joe Lockhart. Sure. But Joe was formerly Bill Clinton's press mm-hmm. secretary and before that a political yeah. consultant, PR guy in town. Mm-hmm. This is how well you can do in Washington, yeah. playing PR and consultancy mm-hmm. and your, your relation to politics. Yeah. You can make enough money to the point we can rent a house to the president of the United yeah. States. Yeah, isn't that amazing? It's, uh, it's, it's very kind of the telling. tail wagging the dog. It is the tail wagging the dog, and the, uh, and the tail is getting bigger every year. Final question. I'm going to let you go here, and I do appreciate your time. We've talked a lot about media today. We haven't talked much about the conservative movement Mm -hmm. in 2016 in America. So just a couple minutes to go here. Mm -hmm. Give conservatives listening to this a reason to be optimistic because right now mm -hmm. now they're not looking a lot of optimistic. There's Mm -hmm. talk of of Trump losing, the Senate's in question, and where does the party move forward? So give conservatives some reasons to believe. Well, uh, look, you believe because your principles are right. And but the party in a practical there are two things about conservatism. I think the beliefs are the same. I mean, all conservatives are for limited government. Uh, they're for lower taxes. They're for strong defense. Uh, and yet, practically, when when you get down to Congress and state houses and so on. It's a party that's divided. Uh, it's a division that has been exaggerated by the Trump candidacy. And in the primaries, I was struck, Bill, by one in the Republican primaries, which are not are predominantly conservatives voting uh, by one question asked in all the exit polls, and it was this, do you feel betrayed by your Republican leaders? And in every state, uh, people in uh, more conservative states, more moderate states, the answer was by a majority in, in every state, yes, we do feel betrayed that they have somehow not done in Washington to challenge Obama and so on. Uh, it, it was something that Trump has played on, and it's a division um, that will still be there in the next Congress with the next president. Uh, and Republicans, I know House Speaker Paul Ryan worries about this and, and a lot of other Republicans do, but they really haven't found a way to overcome it because every faction in their, of, of conservatives, they all have a website, they all have people on television, uh, they all have a voice that I'm afraid will not be silenced. Fred Barnes. Thanks for sitting in with us today. We can find you at the Weekly Standard. You're at the Wall Street Journal. Mm-hmm. And you're on Twitter, too, right? No. Uh, my, Twitter. <laughs> I, I have a Twitter account. I have tweeted from time to time. But uh, before my son uh, went to work for Kevin McCarthy, he used to tweet for me. So I had a, I had a substitute doing it for me. And he's, uh, he's not on that playing field anymore. So uh, I, I tweet about once a month. Not very active. Now, Britt Hume, my friend... 
is a very active tweeter, likes to respond to people who criticize him, and has made tweets uh, a big a part of the end of his show uh, on Fox now. Yes, but you're able to kick the tweeting habit. I kicked it. Donald Trump, are you listening? <laughs> Fred, thanks for joining us today. It's been an honor to be your friend these many years. Thank well, you good. very much for taking time, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your week. Uh, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. For more information about the Hoover Institution, please visit our website. That's www.hoover.org. And while you're here, I encourage you to sign up for the Hoover Daily Report. It keeps you up to date on all the ways Hoover fellows are making news, their studies, analyses, and commentaries. Just give us a word, and it will arrive in your inbox every business day. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. Thanks for sitting in with us today. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more research by our fellows on the 2016 election, please visit hoover.org slash decision 2016. For more podcasts from Hoover, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.